Open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Matthew, the book of Matthew uh, chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, and as you're turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, which is the beginning of the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, quoted in all kinds of contexts, Christian and otherwise. Uh, as you turn to Matthew chapter 5, I just want to say thank you uh, to the pastors of Calvary Grace, to the staff to the whole congregation, I have just received such an invitation and kindness and welcome and hospitality. And I, I just want to say to the whole congregation, I praise God for you. Thankful for your faithfulness to God's Word. It's encouraging to see you uh, holding fast to the Word of life and shining like lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. I want you to know that uh, a couple hours ago, my home church was praying for you. And bring you greetings uh, on their behalf, and I'll be looking forward to telling them about uh, this trip next Sunday. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it's got one of those Bible words in it that you could kind of gloss over and not think about the full magnitude of blessed. You might want to think of blessing from God as being under His smile, as being under the warmth of His smile, His approval, His Good pleasure. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed, and these are our verses. We'll be looking at verses 10, 11, and 12. Blessed are those who persecuted, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's Word. Let's pray. 
Father, I, I'm so happy to be here with your people, so happy to be saved by you, so happy to know you, so thankful for your grace and your kindness in just giving us your Son, giving us the church, giving us old friends, giving us family that we love. We just praise you for these amazing gifts. And Lord, I am just so happy to uh, get to open up your word to your people and all the goodness that's there, all the help that's there for your people who you've left in this difficult situation in this world. And yet at the same time, as, as happy as I am and as glad as I am to be here, I am utterly able to do anything to help your people. Lord, I'm weak and we're weak. Lord, uh, all of us are weak. Some of us are even dead. We're just bored to tears through your truth. Would you please come by your Spirit and show your glory, this pearl of great price, this diamond in the rough. Would you please let us see beauty and glory where we've never seen it before. We pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm thinking this morning with you about the topic of persecution. And I'm thinking about it with you because, of course, it's what this passage is dealing with. Jesus says very clearly, blessed are those who persecuted and blessed are you when others revile and persecute you. And so Jesus thinks it's a critical part of being His follower to think about persecution and to think about it rightly. And not only do I want to think with you about persecution, but I really want to encourage you, as all of us in the church in North America face increase, the increasing reality of persecution in our own lives and in the lives of those we love. And I want to begin this morning by telling you three stories of persecution, each that get a little closer to home. The first is the story of an Afghani family I love. They're members of our church. I've officiated at the wedding of two of their daughters and watched two of their sons get baptized. And the reason this family is in America is because about 15 years ago, the father, we'll call him a boss, met a Christian missionary in Kabul, Afghanistan. And he started reading the Bible with this missionary. And Abbas loved reading the Bible, but his Muslim brothers did not like this. And eventually they gave Abbas an ultimatum. Stop reading the Bible or leave the family business. In fact, probably leave the country. So Abbas picked up his wife and six of his kids and fled Afghanistan. First to India, where they spent ten years with no legal status at all, no ability to work. And then to America, where their family has begun to prosper after persecution. The second story is about my wife's cousin in Ontario. Uh, for 25 years, he was a public school teacher. And as a public school teacher, he taught faithfully and over the years tried to share the gospel with students where he could. He taught sometimes in normal public schools. The other times would speak uh, or would be a teacher in, in, the, in the prison system. Uh, in the juvenile detention system where he would teach students. Most recently, out of Christian conviction, he spoke to a transgender student and tried to discourage them pursuing a new gender identity. No coercion, 
but a simple act of Christian witness. And for this he was fired because of his abusive treatment of the student. And now he's no longer teaching for a living, which is what he trained for and for decades had experience in. But now he's been working as a bus driver and a shuttle driver for various companies, launching his teen sons into adulthood from a very different place than where he planned. The third story involves a large 3,000-kid school, Christian school, in Louisville, Kentucky, where I live and minister. It's a school where a number of our members teach and coach and direct choir. This school gave their middle school students, or junior high students, an assignment. Write a letter to a friend who struggles with homosexuality and seek to persuade them of the goodness of God's design. Students were told they would be graded for, and if you're in junior high or middle school, listen up, this was a pretty good assignment. Biblical reasoning, kindness, humility, winsomeness, and persuasiveness. I've read the assignment in detail. I'd be proud of any junior high kid at Emmanuel who could write such a balanced and loving letter. One student took the assignment home to their father. Their father wasn't impressed. He passed it on to a gay friend of the family. Gay friend of the family posted it to Twitter. Pretty soon the story was in our local paper. It was on all most of the nightly news stations. And people in our community were calling on the Christian school to apologize, to stop the hate, and basically to abandon their Christian convictions. If we had more time, I could tell you about an eye doctor who sold his business because so many of the kids he was seeing were transitioning their gender and he feared his convictional response to their transitioning would jeopardize his business. Or I could tell you of two medical students who have some fear they may not be able to graduate from med school because their convictions on abortion and gender reassignment, surgery are increasingly viewed with disdain. They have professors, of course, who share their concerns, but those professors are isolated and afraid to speak. In many seasons of church history, it has been the preachers and pastors who have faced the tip of the spear when it comes to Christian persecution. In our day and time, persecution is far more likely to come from the HR department at work than from the police headquarters downtown. Wherever it comes from, persecution, and listen to this, this is going to be key to what I'm going to say, is a reality all Christians will face. Paul says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will face persecution. I've done my homework. The Greek word for all there means all. Paul says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will face persecution. It's also a reality that will lead many to abandon Jesus. The Bible is true. There are many sitting here this morning who will not be here in a year or two's time. Because Jesus said, when tribulations and persecutions arise because of the Word, some will fall away. Because of this reality, I feel burdened that the people of God be equipped to respond to persecutions, to support one another in them, and not only to survive persecutions, but to thrive 
in the joy that Jesus desires His persecuted people to have in the midst of their trials. Our passage this morning deals head-on with the reality of persecution. And Jesus' goal in these verses is not simply to discuss persecution, but to transform our view of it. He wants to change our minds about how we see persecution. He wants to change our hearts regarding how we feel about persecution. And above all, He wants us to see that for the Christian, persecution is a mark of God's blessing on our lives. And it's an opportunity for great rejoicing and gladness even in the midst of great pain. If you were having trouble seeing just how stark a difference the Gospel makes in a person's life, Jesus wants to make sure we understand clearly just how stark a difference the Gospel makes in a person's life. That actually is what these Beatitudes are all about. I I think it's so important that as we kind of approach our text, we really understand these Beatitudes. See, what the Beatitudes basically tell you is the Christian life feels awful, but it is awesome. What the Beatitudes basically say is that the Christian life feels miserable, but it is the only path to mercy. See what Jesus is doing. Listen to how the people who are receiving the Beatitudes, these new believers Jesus is speaking to in Matthew chapter 5, listen to how they feel. You can find that in the middle comment in each of the Beatitudes. Each comment, each Beatitude starts with blessed. Then there's an attitude of how we currently feel or are. And then there's a future promise. So look at how the average Christian feels. Poor in spirit. I'm killing it is not a common wake-up sentiment when you're walking with Jesus. Those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted. The Christian life is a life of spiritual poverty, recognizing you're not all that before God, It is a life of mourning over your sins. It's a life of meekness. You're not pushing to get to the top of the dog pile. It's a life of showing mercy. It's a life not of tolerating sin, but purity of heart. It's a life of trying to make peace between all the people, including yourself, that are making war in the world. And it's a life of trying to do right and being persecuted for it. It feels awful, but it is awesome. Because what Jesus is trying to do is trying to reorient how we view blessing. Because as much as we might not like the prosperity gospel with with their fancy suits or their $700 Nikes and muscle shirts, as much as you might not be into that, all of us have a pretty deep-seated relationship with the prosperity gospel in our souls. God is blessing me when I get a promotion. God is blessing me when I feel great. God is blessing me when, I, when everything is going well in my life. Interestingly, Jesus says that if everything is always going well in your life, you're damned. He says it in Luke's Gospel. Woe to you who are full now. Woe to you who are laugh now. Woe to you when all people speak 
well of you. Jesus utterly reverses what blessing is all about. He transforms what it means to be blessed. And and actually, the Beatitudes, I think, they're meant to be really comforting. They're meant to be really comforting because here's the Christian. They've seen that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for their sins. They see that they're a sinner. All of a sudden, they mourn over their sins in ways they didn't. They feel merciful. They see the needs of the world in ways they didn't. They want to make peace where there's war and people are hating and being hated. They want to move into all this and they face all kinds of opposition. And you can feel like you must certainly be doing something wrong. Right? And Jesus says, oh, you're on the right track. That's the path of blessing. You hungry and thirsty for righteousness, wishing things were better, you will be satisfied. You're cleansing your heart from all the sin, you will see God. You're poor in spirit, noticing that you're not all that. In fact, your desires are pretty base. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So what Jesus is doing is saying, listen, here are the nasty experiences of the Christian life. Now, if if, if I'm not making sense and I'm not being clear, the Christian life feels a lot like, and this should surprise you, a cross. It feels like a death. It, It feels like the life of Christ who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with much grief. And it's only and always looking up. It's only and always getting better. It's 100% and completely blessed. It is on its way to see God. It's on its way to inherit the kingdom. It's on its way to receive mercy. It's on its way to a heavenly reward. It's on its way to seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus is doing here is He's taking the worst external experience. He starts with some internal experiences. You feel poor in spirit. And he goes all the way to the most external experience. You're being persecuted. And he wants you to know that all of these are the path of blessing. This is the good life. If your definition of life isn't just 80 years long. This is the good life if your definition of life is 8 trillion bazillion years long. It includes eternal life. So, what this passage does then is it's trying to show that persecution is one of the marks of God's blessing on our lives and it's a chance to experience some of God's sweetest joys. Now, this passage tackles persecution from three angles. First, the scope of persecution. Second, the cause of persecution. And finally, the joys of persecution. Many of us have a very, very narrow view of persecution. We need to start with the scope of persecution because the biggest problem with this sermon is you start preaching it and everyone thinks I'm talking to someone in North Korea. But I'm not talking to anyone in North Korea. Unless you're here from North Korea. But anyway, many of us have a very narrow view of persecution. We hear about Christians being tortured in North Korea, in a jail, and we think, persecution. But the words of Jesus here in Matthew 5 speak to these heinous examples of persecution 
But they do not only speak to the most severe examples of persecution. Notice as you read the passage that Jesus broadens the scope of what we think of when we think of persecution. In verse 10, Jesus uses the word persecution in a general way. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. But then when he spells out persecution, verse 11, he does not limit persecution to physical attacks. He speaks of reviling. Did you see that in verse 11? Rejoice. Sorry, blessed are you and others revile and persecute you. He speaks of reviling as part of persecution. And the word translated reviling here in Matthew 5 is the word translated insults in 1 Peter chapter 4. Being verbally insulted for following Jesus is true persecution. Jesus tells us later in the verse that false accusations are true persecution. And so we see rejoice and be glad in verse 12 after He says in verse 11 that we are suffering evil against you falsely on My account. We're blessed, Jesus tells us, when others utter all kinds of evil against us falsely on account of Him. In the parallel account of the Beatitudes that we find in Luke's Gospel, we read, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Have you ever been hated by family? or friends, or co-workers, or the broader culture? Have you ever been a dad who looked down on a mom as she tried to bring Christian conviction to the family? Have you ever been a child who was scorned by a family or parents as you tried to live for Jesus? These things are persecution. And we will do ourselves a great disservice if we only view persecution as what's happening in martyrdom. Martyrdom is persecution, but it is not the only persecution. And you need to settle it in your mind right now. Who gets to define persecution? The United Nations or Jesus? Is it just political persecution? Or is it any hatred, any reviling, any, any uh, false accusations, any physical attacks that come to us on His behalf? That is what the Lord Jesus says about persecution. And if anyone gets to define persecution, it is Him. And it's for the comfort of His people. It's for the comfort of His people. We must understand that everything from being hated to being hunted is true persecution. And all Christians, whether they are slandered or slaughtered, are called to rejoice and be glad in persecution. One of the reasons so important to view persecution rightly and to see how broad it is is because if we don't follow Jesus' view of persecution, we won't experience its comforts. If you think only the guy in North Korea gets the special presence of God when he's persecuted, you won't understand God drawing near to you when you're being opposed for a simple Christian witness. And on top of this, if our view of Christian persecution is too narrow, limited just to those who are physically hurt, it will undermine our assurance of salvation. You see, the Bible says, I already mentioned this verse, 
all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will face persecution. The Bible does not say all who are godly in Christ Jesus will be martyred or imprisoned. But if we think of persecution as only really happening when a Christian is martyred or imprisoned, then we will look at a verse like this one and just read it and say, maybe I'm not a Christian. But if we see that all Christians will be hated or slandered or insulted or beaten, then we will see, if we think a little while, that all of us have really been persecuted for righteousness' sake if we've walked with Him. And if you haven't, if no one has ever thought ill of you for your Christianity, then the question really does come up. Have you ever followed Christ? Noticing the scope of persecution will help us prepare for and overcome what we might call average temptations. When we relegate persecution to the, to the North Korea thing, to the, to the Afghanistan thing, if we think of it only there, then we may not be really girding up our minds and readying our souls for the more average temptations. It's far more likely at this point in history for most of us in Canada the persecution will come in social situations or from the HR department at work as our values collide with the worldly values of our day. We have to be ready to face that. But many of us may face persecution in our businesses, our factories, our workplaces of all kinds. James Montgomery Boyce tells of a time when a man came to the great church father, Tertullian, and he came to Tertullian in the first centuries of the church, and the man's business interests, says Boyce, had been conflicting with his loyalty to Jesus Christ. He told Tertullian of the problem. He ended to say, by saying, what can I do? I must live. Tertullian said, must you? Tertullian understood what we need to understand in our day. That persecutions and difficulties may come if our government becomes tyrannical. But difficulties may come in the course of the ordinary business on which our livelihoods depend. In those situations, we must be crystal clear. The core commitment of the Christian soul is not to live, but to put Jesus on display in our lives. And that can be done both in life and in death. Abounding and being abased. Greater opportunities or more confining circumstances. I think I'll mention this a couple times, but I want to just at least at this point insert the possibility here that not only does redefining persecution or broadening it speak something powerful to Christians, but it speaks something challenging to non-Christians. It may be that you have been a persecutor of the church. You think, I've never killed anyone, martyred anyone, imprisoned anyone. My wife's just been applying after many years of living in the United States, she's been applying for U.S. citizenship and you have to fill out the forms. Have you ever incarcerated anyone for their religious beliefs? No. <laughs> have, you ever, have, you ever, have you ever fought in a war to fight someone for their religion? No. But have you ever maligned anyone for their Christianity? Have you ever been hateful? To someone because of their Christian conviction. I was. I was a persecutor of the church. 
I actually got saved while I was planning to write stand-up comedy about how foolish Christians were. God got the last laugh on that one. And if you've been in any way, shape, or form a persecutor of the church, and that may be a, such a foreign idea to you that I want to bring it up a couple of times in the sermon just to let you get used to it. If that's ever been you, the first thing you need to know is that Jesus loves to forgive those who've opposed Him. He just loves it. In Acts chapter 2, the first Christian sermon, Peter charges the very men who killed Jesus, says, you delivered over this man to the cross. And they're cut to the heart. And they say, what should we do? And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus is, oh boy, if you insult Allah, you will never hear the end of how you've dishonored Allah. But if you insult Jesus, He'll put an end to it by forgiving you of all those sins if you, forgive, if you will repent to Him. The whole idea that all Religions are the same is an idea only put forward by people who have no religion uh, understanding of religion at all. So, the scope of persecution is broad, not narrow. Second, let's notice the cause of persecution. This is very important. These verses do not speak to all persecuted peoples. Notice that Jesus is very particular about who is being spoken to here. He is speaking to those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Did you see that in the text? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, you are aware that all people have standards of righteousness. Believers, unbelievers. Standards of righteousness is not a distinctively Christian thing. All people have some sense of right and wrong. But Jesus is not simply saying here that if you are being persecuted for doing what you think is right, then you're blessed. He's saying that all those who are persecuted for His standards of righteousness are being blessed. Jesus is not speaking to those who have this or that standard of righteousness. He is speaking to those who are His followers, who listen to Him when they define righteousness. Do you see this in the text? First he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But he goes on and he clarifies in verse 11, blessed are, others who re- sorry, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Do you hear that? It's because of Him. The promises he's making are when people are reviled because of Him, because of their association with Him, because of their trust in Him because they're following of Him, when they are persecuted because of their alliance with Him, then they are blessed. Notice this. The persecution we're talking about is the kind that comes on account of following Jesus, on account of our identification with Him. And Jesus is not pronouncing a blessing on all the peoples of the earth who are persecuted. Now think about that for a minute. Are Christians the only people in the world who are persecuted? Absolutely not. The Jews have been persecuted. Hindus are persecuted. Jesus is not saying all who have ever been persecuted, yours is the kingdom of heaven. 
as much as we might want to reinstate the kind of shame around sexual perversion that is right. When we hear of people in the gay community being beaten, that's a form of persecution. That's not right. He is not saying to Hindus who do not receive the words of the Old Testament prophets, hey, you're being treated the same as the Old Testament prophets, so you should rejoice and be glad because you're being treated like them. We must keep these promises in their context, in the Bible. We must not yank them out of their context. The blessings Jesus is promising are for those who are persecuted for following Him. Indeed, we must actually go a step further and say something else. And this one is pretty important. These blessings are not only just for Christians when they suffer for Jesus, but they are only for Christians when they're actually suffering for Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm sure you're aware that Christians can be idiots. They can be sinful. They can be foolish. Sometimes the number one reason people don't become Christians really is the Christians. Not always. But sometimes that's the case. And when you lose your job because you are a lazy bum wearing a gold cross around your neck, you are not to declare, blessed am I. Your boss is not persecuting you for Jesus' sake. Your boss is frustrated that you are a lazy bum. And there's no way we should take comfort in that. But rather, we should repent. We should repent. And we certainly don't want to add to our sin the sin of saying that my folly is a sign of God's blessing on my life. No way. That's not the case. If you suffer persecution to your sin, due to your sin and foolishness, His primary desire for you is to repent of whatever sin and foolishness is bringing the wrath of God, wrath of other people, sorry, down on your head. Peter addresses this head on when he says in 1 Peter chapter 4, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. He's saying the same thing as Jesus. Kind of wonder where he got the idea from. If you are insulted from the name of Jesus, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Do you hear it? If you suffer for the name of Christ, you're blessed. God's Spirit's on you. But if you suffer for sin... Peter uses some extreme examples. Murder, theft, meddling. Meddling can refer to getting involved in affairs that aren't your own. It can also potentially refer to revolutionary activity that would overthrow the government. Peter's saying if you get involved in that stuff, don't pronounce the opposition you face as a sign of God's blessing. When you share the gospel, when you should be working, and your boss reprimands you, then you're not experiencing Christian persecution. You're experiencing God's discipline from the authority He's placed over you. And the same must be said about our political involvement. And here we must draw fine lines. In the coming years, we may need to conscientiously object to various dictates given to us by the government. Absolutely. They may call us to practice medicine in a way that distorts the good gift of the gender assigned us at birth. If they call us to only preach what lines up with the political fads of the day, we must resist. In each of these situations, we are called to disobey. But there is nothing in the New Testament that would lead us to think that we should be part of an insurrection or a violent revolt. 
If the government were to become completely tyrannical, we can pray, we can disobey, we can joyfully be persecuted, but we are not to be those who are persecuted as part of an unlawful resistance. We are to be those who are persecuted for their stand for righteousness, not their rebellious unrighteousness. One more note here. Notice that Jesus said we would be persecuted for righteousness for His sake. The persecution will not always come in direct connection to the Gospel. It would be lovely if every non-Christian who persecuted us clarified that it was because they did not like our distinct view of the Trinity and our particular understanding of the atonement. That's not the way this usually goes down. It will often come when we are standing for particular ethical standards that Jesus has led us into. When we, take, when we, when we express the Gospel, and then our express, because of our faith in the Gospel, we stand for life or against, I can't even call it euthanasia. Certainly can't call it dying with dignity. It's legalized murder of the aged and the sick and the infirmed. When we stand for those things, we will be standing for Christ's righteousness. And when people suffer and lose jobs for those things, it will be the call of the Christian church to say, that wasn't just for the gospel explicitly, but rather to understand that our brothers and sisters are suffering for the righteousness that Christ has called them into. Which means that sometimes we'll suffer for the same reasons that other people of religious conviction suffer. And we'll have to make the distinction between suffering with them and at the same time still wanting their salvation. Uh, Dr. Albert Moeller, many of you may be aware, was speaking to a large group of Mormons. And he said, I think we may wind up going to jail together, though I don't believe we're going to heaven together. We can keep our theological distinctives and understand that there will be co-belligerence we don't agree with. I'm with any feminist who hates pornography. We can stand where there's a care for righteousness, but we have to understand that the persecution that comes to us must be because we are following Jesus. Thirdly, let's notice the joy of persecution. It just sounds funny coming off your tongue, doesn't it? The joy of persecution. Jesus calls us to a striking and a shocking reaction to persecution. We are called to rejoice. The word literally means to be in a deep state of happiness. That's the kind of deep state the Christian should be concerned about, is the deep state of happiness. The word is literally the opposite of weeping and lamenting. When the prodigal son returned to the father after his rebellion, the father tells us that it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. Jesus is telling us that when you're persecuted, it's fitting to celebrate and be glad. Jesus is telling us that this gladness should mark us, not just when the lost are saved, but when the saved are persecuted. And if the Christian church doesn't reorient its understanding of blessing and and encourage joy in these moments, then Christian believers will not stand. Persecution is hard enough by itself. It's impossible joylessly. And we are not only to rejoice, but to be glad. The word according to one dictionary means to be exceedingly joyful, exult, and be glad, and overjoyed. 
Jesus basically says the same thing twice so that it cannot be misunderstood. When we are persecuted, whether it's a family member who excludes us or the government who imprisons us, we are to rejoice and be glad. This is the consistent teaching of the New Testament regarding trials. Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings. James, the brother of Jesus, says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of various kinds. The universal New Testament teaching is that trials in general should be met with rejoicing. And this teaching is applied directly here to one of the greatest trials we will face in our Christian life. Persecution. Exclusion from a group of friends, from family. Ostracism from society at large. Imprisonment from the very government charged with defending our rights and freedoms. Beloved, what would that joy say to a watching world? Now, I need to go on a little excursus. An excursus is a scholarly way of saying rabbit trail. And so, what I need to do is go on a little rabbit trail here for a second. The world we're in is marked by two features very prominently right now. Evil and weakness. There's an evil in fathers committing adultery on their wives and then abandoning their homes and all the wickedness that goes from there. There's an evil in families pursuing the success of their children and never their spiritual good. There's an evil in a government that's supposed to execute justice, only executing mercy, totally misunderstanding its role. There's evil in all of these things. And then into that lawless culture, you pump a fire hose with the pornography and entertainment and distraction. And what you wind up with is people who are quite corroded. And then in the midst of it, follow me here, you wind up with people because they're surrounded by no one who will protect them. People only take advantage of them. You wind up with people, and I say this with all the heart I can, who've been raped, abused, taken advantage of. And then in that evil situation, you add a weakness, an inability to cope, a, a, a constant, I can't even. You, you, you add to that an idea that, oh, where are you supposed to get your strength? I mean, where did you just evolve here? And now you're supposed to be strong while you're being abused? You've got, a, you've got an evil and you've got a weakness. You follow me? And I just want to say to you, there is a power available to bring joy even into this evil, weak world. It's easy to look at the snowflakes. It's easy to look at the weak kids of the day. It's easy to look at the people who are depressed and anxious and how he can't even get out of bed. That is a tragedy. That is a problem. But it's not surprising. It's not surprising that a generation given no reason to live and only personal pleasures to live for and then to suffer injustice and abuse that they would just want to lay down and say, I can't even. I'm not adulting today. I can't keep going. That's not a shock. What's a shock is a community in the midst of that that's facing terrible persecution with a smile on their face who can get out of bed, who can keep going, who have found a strength that is present even when they're being drained of that strength 
by persecution. That will shine like lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And it'll do it without just beating the weaklings over the head. It will do it with the invitation of Jesus. This idea of rejoicing in persecution is not some pie-in-the-sky ideal. The New Testament church actually lived this way. Real, flesh-and-blood, normal people like you and I lived this way. In the book of Acts, after the first outburst of Christian persecution, what does it say? Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. We need to add this to our list of Christian triumphs. Did you graduate from high school? Yes. Did you graduate from college? Yes. Did you get your first job? Yes. Did you lose your first job? Yes. There's a preacher who used to say, I don't respect a man who hasn't been fired at least once for the glory of God. We need to normalize the kind of conviction that might get you into trouble and the rejoicing in that very moment. Our current generation would mark a beating as a source of life-defining trauma that would result in spiritual injury so deep it would never be overcome. Not the early church. They left suffering singing. Paul and Silas show us another example of this. They are beaten. They're put into inner prison. They're placed in stocks. And what do they do? They sing hymns. Because there is a source of joy that comes from outside of this world. When the world denies you all the normal sources of joy, they have denied you nothing if you have Christ. And that's what persecution enables the church to witness to. That there is a treasure beyond this life. We cannot forget that dancing can happen in the midst of great pain and persecution. The saints Peter was ministering to were not just told to rejoice in suffering. They were told, he says this about them, you do rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you've been grieved by various trials. Or think about the writer to Hebrews. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened. So here's the writer of Hebrews kind of going dad on them. Hey, let's remember the good old days. Okay, tell me what you got. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Do we believe in heaven or not? Is the great difference the Christian faith makes that it makes your life better now or that it makes it better eternally? Now, I think for the most part, it often does improve life now. But if in this life only we follow Christ, then we are to be pitied above all men. Beloved, these Beatitudes teach us that what Jesus does often in our lives feels bad, but it is good. He makes us poor in spirit. No one wants that. We want to have what it takes to rise to the occasion. He, he makes us to be persecuted. Nobody wants that. We want to have ease. Of course we do. And we will get it in heaven. 
but he tells us that persecution will bring us joy. And he gives us two reasons, and I'll leave you with these. Jesus gives us two reasons why we can have persecution, to joy in persecution. The first is there in the text, so is the second. But the first is there in the text when it says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. The cause of rejoicing is not a general optimism. It's certainly not a sadistic love of pleasure. But we're to rejoice and be glad because we will be rewarded in heaven. John D. Rockefeller was one of the wealthiest men of all time. Uh, in today's dollars, Money Magazine says he was worth $340 billion. That's four times the worth of Bill Gates. And he's edging out Elon Musk by a cool $90 billion. At the time of Rockefeller's death, the general public did not know how much he was worth. And as you can imagine, they were curious. Kent Hughes writes, When John D. Rockefeller died, the public became understandably curious about the size of the famous man's fortune. One reporter, determined to find out, secured an appointment with one of Rockefeller's highest aides. He asked the aide how much Rockefeller left behind. And the man answered simply, he left it all. That is the case with this world's biggest fortunes, big or small. We leave them behind. As John Piper said, there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. For the Christian, that is not the end, though. For the Christian, we will die and be rewarded with material and relational wealth in heaven. Sweet fellowship with God and His people in a place where Main Street is paved in gold. You know, you'll hear people say, I don't care about the street of gold. All I want to do is see Jesus. Well, then why did He tell us about the street of gold? The Bible portrays heaven as a place with fine wine, the best meats, the best cheeses, and Jesus. It's not an either-or issue. One of the reasons people can't get excited about heaven is because no one wants to hang out with little fat angels playing harps too long. Heaven is going to be just like life on earth, but without sin. It's a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, where we govern cities, where we eat the best meats and eat the best cheeses, and we cruise down a street of gold, meaning no poverty anywhere. And what we are being told here is that if we suffer loss in this life for Jesus Christ, it is to cause us joy because it is a reminder and assurance that we are on the path to every kind of wealth. Material, a place where there's only prosperity. Not just material, but relational. In heaven, all the people you know are different, so it's better. Someone told me the other day, they said, you said a quote a few years ago, and I've always remembered it. I'm like, oh no, what was it? They said, you, you said, people ruin everything, and so do I. It's true. People ruin everything. Unless, of course, they're taken to heaven and every person is changed so that they're just like Jesus. In which case, you're with Jesus, you're with people you don't have to be patient with. 
you're not someone they need to be patient with, and the food's on the table. It's a perfect place. And it's the promise to all who are persecuted. So we should rejoice. We should be glad. Jesus gives us a second reason why we should rejoice and be glad when we're persecuted. The reason is basically this. We're in good company. We're in good company. Do you see that in the text? He says, Rejoice, this is verse 12, and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Oh, when the saints go marching in. Oh, when the saints go marching in. Oh, Lord, I want to be in that number. When the saints go marching in. Moses was persecuted by Pharaoh. I want to go where Moses went, not where Pharaoh went. Elijah was persecuted by Jezebel. I want to be part of the band with Elijah, not Jezebel. Jeremiah was persecuted by a Jewish priest. I want to be numbered among the Jeremiahs. Amos was persecuted by Jeroboam. I do not want to go where Jeroboam went. I want to join Amos. John the Baptist was beheaded so that Herod could show off. I want to be part of the band where John the Baptist is a part of. You talk about being on the wrong side of history. I'll tell you what side of history I want to be on. I want to be on the side of history that includes David the poet. I want to be on the side of history that includes Jesus the King. I want to be numbered with those men and women. And let me just, I'm not asking to be numbered with the greats. Those were all sinners who knew a Savior. That's what I want to be numbered with. I want to be numbered with the great men and women of God who knew they were sinners and knew that God was a great, great Savior. Listen, in life, joy usually comes from inclusion and sadness from exclusion. We rejoice when we're included. We rejoice when someone we wanted to befriend us returns our phone call. When the school we want to attend accepts us. When the person we want to marry says yes. When we get the job we applied to, when our families welcome us home with open arms. These acts of inclusion are where we normally experience joy. And exclusion is where we experience pain and grief. Persecution is all about exclusion. When I was in Indonesia this summer, one of the new believers was being put out of their family. Back in Louisville, one of my friends was not invited to the Kentucky Derby party. This is a big deal if you're in Louisville, Kentucky. Because of her stance on gay marriage. After President Biden withdrew the troops from Afghanistan last year, more Afghani believers fled their homeland. Many of them landed in Louisville, Kentucky and joined our church and that other Afghani family. All of this persecution revolves around exclusion. But Jesus wants us to know that when the world excludes us, He includes us in the all-star team. He tells believers great and small that when they are persecuted for His sake, then He will show them all the grace He gave to Isaiah and Miriam, to David and to Deborah. You are included in the army of the redeemed. So you should and I should rejoice and be glad. Believers, are we disciples of Jesus? 
sorry, we are disciples of Jesus, and in the course of our discipleship, it will include persecution. It's not something strange that comes to a few special Christians. It's not a bug that occasionally affects Christianity. It's a feature of the true Christian life. It comes to us as we simply and faithfully seek to live the life Jesus calls blessed. Some of us will will face hate and alienation. Others will face imprisonment and martyrdom. All of us who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will face something in the broad scope of persecution. What will we do when it comes? Many will leave the faith. Matthew 13 tells us many professing believers will fall away when tribulation and persecution arise. But how will we press on? Joy will be the key. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And that is what Jesus is calling us to. A rejoicing and a gladness that will help us press on. That is what our Lord is doing. He's preparing us to be able to press on even when the world persecutes us. He's calling us to the joy we will need to press on. And it's a joy that is not escapist like a joy of a drug. He's giving us the true truth that we can hold on to when we lose the treasures of this life in the grief and furies of persecution. Let me close by repeating what I said to those who may be here and are not believers. It may be again that what I'm saying about persecution means you've persecuted. It's amazing. I was meeting with just a little boy Maybe I could talk to all the little kids for a second. I got some eyes. How you doing? I was talking to a kid about 10 or 11 last week, and he was telling me about how he's come to Christ, how he's trusting Jesus, how he's obeying Jesus. Guess who he's getting the most opposition from? From his siblings. Now, I have enough kids to know that sometimes that opposition can be because the new Christian is a bit of a problem. But it can also be because there's a true faith in Christ. And if you're experiencing that kind of persecution, even if it's from your siblings, you need to learn now to find joy in Jesus. And if you're one of those kids who's making it hard to be a Christian, or you're here as an adult and and you're not someone... Well, you're someone who would make it hard to be a Christian around. You need to understand that Jesus counts persecution against His church as persecution against Himself. When Paul was going after the church to persecute it, Jesus appears to him from the sky and says, Saul, Saul, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? If you'll turn from that persecution and repent of it. Return from any sin as you see it. He'll forgive you. He'll redeem you. He may even give you the honor of making you to be persecuted for His sake. And lastly, to the Christians who are here, I just want to encourage you. The Apostle Paul ran after Christians to kill them, and along the way, Jesus reached out and saved him made him a church leader. And you may be being persecuted. And I'm sure if you are, the person who's doing it, it just feels like God could never save them. No, the glory of the gospel is someday they could be your pastor. 
That's what God does. Can you imagine some of those pastoral visits? Paul goes to visit someone. Hey, you remember that time you were trying to kill me? That's the glory of the gospel. It makes enemies friends by Jesus dying for sinners. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace and Your goodness and the goodness of the Gospel. We pray that it would be lovely to all of us and that we would be rejoicing and glad even when we face the highest costs for following You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.